Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, where do we stand in the fight against the coronavirus and the plan to get Canadians vaccinated? The more uh, we can get vaccine doses quicker, the quicker uh, we're able to get through this uh, and the better it is for our economy. And that is what drove us uh, in all of our discussions and negotiations, the protection of Canadians and uh, a quick restoration of of, uh, economic normality. The federal budget is expected to pass today. The fact that they are making that a confidence vote and not just the budget itself, which is of course a confidence vote, but they're making amendments as well, is a clear indication on top of a whole bunch of other indications that this Liberal government and Justin Trudeau are looking for an excuse to go to an election. They're looking for one, and that should be very clear. We are not going to give them one. That should also be clear. And Christia Freeland apologizes to women who experienced harassment in the military but says she knew nothing of the allegations against Jonathan Vance. What you're seeing is the circle of people who knew is spreading, but they keep claiming they didn't know anything. So we have more people knowing nothing or very little about the allegations. And, you know, uh, that's their story. It's Monday, April 26th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Peter Van Dusen, CPAC's executive producer and the host of Primetime Politics. Peter, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Mark. A pleasure as always. Let's take stock of where we stand at the start of a new week. Uh, we, we've seen, obviously, significant numbers of infections in some parts of the country, uh, despite measures to control the third wave of the coronavirus, although it, those measures obviously will take time to have an effect. Uh, we've also seen a significant number of people being vaccinated, particularly in the past week, as the rules have changed in some provinces, especially Ontario. The prime minister was vaccinated over the weekend, uh, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole as well. So we're seeing some progress on that front. What, is, what do you think that all adds up to right now? Well, I think it adds up to... Um you know, kind of uh, the natural course of the pandemic, and I say that in the in the sense that people would sure like like it to be you know heading towards a resolution much more quickly and uh, to an easing of restrictions and to get a real sense that we we've turned the corner. But as we're starting to feel, Mark, it's a really really long sweeping corner. I mean, we seem to be sort of doing well, then we have a setback, and then we're doing a little better, then we have a setback. So I think it's really reinforced the notion that it's it's a long haul, and all our political leaders and health leaders have been saying that, and just really urging people to hang on to the to the public health orders and the restrictions a, a little bit longer. And one of the challenges for you know a health crisis like this is that there are all these sort of lagging indicators, right? It's, it's like you 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 don't really get the payoff of the difficult restrictions and measures you're taking for several weeks down the road, including vaccination including the, uh, you know, the lockdown measures and the stay-at-home measures, it feels not much fun while you're doing it, and you have to sort of accept the message that don't worry, it'll pay off. And I think in some parts of the country, you're starting to see that uh, a little bit of a plateauing of of the uh, case numbers and the rise in the case numbers, but other parts of the country seem to be, you know, a little bit behind that in the sense that they're seeing, you know, a... A, a spike in numbers, particularly in, in Atlantic Canada. And so it, it, it's hard to really know where we are. I think a big positive was the fact that political leaders are getting, you know, vaccinated, not only vaccinated, but vaccinated with, with AstraZeneca and full disclosure, Mark. I was vaccinated about a month ago and I accepted the AstraZeneca. And I, I think having, you know, people at the, at the, 
you know, the, the front of the fight doing it, I think, yeah. sends an important message um, because that's one of the key areas where we are uh, to, to, you know, the point of your question is we're, you know, we've seen the ages lowered, more people are available to, but that's only going to work if people in those, you know, expanding age groups are willing to step forward and, and you know, uh, get a vaccine that, you know, they may have some concerns about. Uh, but, you know, all the numbers, you know, watching this as a journalist, all the numbers suggest that, you know, the these very rare blood clot instances are, um, seem to be, according to most of the all the experts, uh, no reason to not take the vaccine. All right, let's turn to an important milestone today. Uh, the The budget is likely to pass through the House of Commons, and um, and I, this has become a bit of an anticlimax. There, there was a time a few weeks back when people were asking questions about whether this budget would trigger a spring election. It it appears very very unlikely that that would be the case. That would be a big shock and surprise. Um, it, it doesn't, of course, rule out the possibility that a spring election could happen for some other reason later this spring. But um, right. uh, what's what does that mean if the budget is passed and and as we're looking at kind of the the uh, the next few months in Canadian politics, uh, getting that out of the way? What does that represent? Yeah, there's no doubt it's going to pass. Um, so you know, this will be the third budget vote today, and. Uh, it's the, it's, you're right, it's a bit anticlimactic because it takes an election off the table and it'll formally do that, uh, later today when that passes and we're done with that. And I think it then refocuses political leaders, uh, on the COVID fight, uh, where many people think their, their attention should be and it gets it off the, 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 uh, the thought of an election campaign, but it doesn't take it off the, the table completely. Of course, in the minority parliament, lots of stuff can happen, but it takes us back. I think to to the conversations you and I have had that you know pushes an election some ways out, um, weeks for sure, uh, and 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 likely months for sure as well. And it takes us back to what's the next possible confidence issue the government could fall on, and there isn't one on the horizon uh, unless it involves some scandal or involves something unexpected. It would then fall back to the prime minister thinking the timing's right. Vaccinations going well, COVID cases are way down. And so I'm going to go ask for a renewed mandate. And that, you know, in a timeline, if you think it through, uh, really sort of thinks, you know, at the very least, uh, you know, late summer into the fall, given where we are in a pandemic that uh, doesn't seem, you know, to want to relent. Um, So, you know, I I think it gets them back thinking about the focus on COVID. Uh, With one exception, I would just, I wouldn't take it off the table completely. Like once COVID starts to settle, uh, you know, the government's going to be in for some, some more questions. And that'll really define any kind of election campaign issue. It's going to be in for more questions about its budget approach. Uh, you know, not a whole lot of questions about rolling out billions more in spending for the pandemic, as much that is needed to, to help Canadians get through it. But then it's all the other uh, social spending. Uh, there's going to be real lines of demarcation uh, when we you know, get a settling of the pandemic and, and people start to refocus on uh, the running of the country uh, from at least a, a fiscal perspective. The government's going to face lots of questions about why it wants to spend the money it wants to spend over the next uh, three to five years uh, that'll still have us running it by the government's estimates, and it may be a lot higher than that at the end of the day, but a, de- you know, a deficit of $30 billion still by 2026 with a lot of... Um, 
you know, financial experts, the parliamentary budget officer. Uh, you know, we're going to hear uh, from him at committee this week. We're going to hear from the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada committee at week this week at committee. And I think a lot of the questions are, are going to be focused on a, on a very pointed line of questioning. And that is, do, do you believe the government of Canada needs to spend the money it's talking about spending to spur an economic recovery? Because that's been the gist of the government's argument. We need to spend this money to get, you know, get Canada uh, back on a recovery track and to re-engineer an economy that's fair. And, and so the government, I think it's really going to focus the argument around the spending is, is it to get the economy back on track or is to create a, a what you believe will be a fairer and a more focused economy on things like climate change. So watch for that kind of conversation as, mm. as we start to manage the pandemic, and, and God willing we do, uh, the conversation is going to focus the government's fiscal plan. Right. All right, let's talk about where we are in the allegations against and the the information that's been coming out about those allegations and who knew what when, the allegations against the former Chief of the Defense Staff General Jonathan Vance. And I think there are there are two storylines here really or two lines of inquiry about this and I I think there are um, opposition MPs who are trying to bring them together, even though they, in in a lot of ways, may be separate from each other. Christia Freeland, the finance minister and deputy prime minister, on the weekend apologized to any women who experienced harassment while serving in the military, but said she wasn't aware of any of the allegations against Vance. Uh, there's obviously an investigation that has to happen here within the military, and there's an issue of culture in the military that many people have raised concerns about. And then there's the political side to the story as well, which is who knew what and when. Um, so are we any further ahead on all of that and what's likely to happen next? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I mean, as I read it, uh, what you're seeing is the circle of people who knew is spreading, but they keep claiming they didn't know anything. So we have more people knowing nothing uh, or very little about the allegations. And, there's, you know, uh, that's their story. And at this at this point, the conservatives keep and, and opposition parties keep trying to push for more information to somehow uh, make a connection that, you know, people in power around the prime minister uh, actually knew more details of the allegations than they say they knew. I mean, it's a pretty straight-line story here. I mean, the allegations come forward through the ombudsman. Uh, the defense minister says he doesn't want to know anything about the details, passes it on to senior public servants who then start to try and investigate. The ombudsman says the complainant doesn't want her name known. Investigation stops. So, I mean, you know, that, that's kind of... I'm not sure we're any further than that in the conversation, except the details about General Vance's behavior uh, just seem to get more lurid. And the fact that he's now... You know, we evidence from uh, one of the complainants who came forward that he, she alleges he's fathered two of her children. And, you know, but it still comes back to what, if anything, did the government know and senior members of the government know about the details of the allegations? And they keep saying they didn't uh, they didn't know the details. And so the, the next step is, well, you know, should you have gone further to try and investigate the details? And their answer is, well, there's privacy issues. The complainant didn't want to, want to be identified, so it stopped there. And so Canadians will have to decide if that's good enough. Uh, the government's also moving on the front of, you know, appointing a, uh, a sort of czar of, of military behavior and sexual misconduct. But it's already coming under fire from a lot of the people close to these investigations and, that, you know, that speak for some of these victims and people who want to come forward with claims that, 
it'll be a, a, a misconduct, uh, you know, um, uh, watchdog, but it'll still be uh, located within uh, the Department of National Defense. And mm. for a lot of people, it's just full stop right there. That's not going to work. Uh, they've made it clear to the government that there needs to be an outside independent office that people in the Canadian military can go to and be assured that uh, no one inside the military will know that they've done that, that they've they've issued a complaint, that their careers might be affected. And it's going to be hard convincing those people that as long as this office if it's a new office located inside the Department of National Defense, is going to provide them that uh, safety, security, and anonymity, it's going to be hard to convince them that that's going to be a, a thing that will work for them. All right. We will see what happens, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today, as always. Okay, Mark. We'll talk soon. Take care. That's CPAC's Peter Van Dusen. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Ottawa Sun calls for a coherent COVID plan. The Sun writes, What actually is the policy to get COVID-19 numbers down so we can lead normal lives? No outline of a broader vision was clear as of Friday. It all leaves us wondering what the coherent strategy is, locally or provincially, to hasten the end of the pandemic. Vaccines are good, but they're only part of the answer. Could we have the rest of the plan, please? And could everyone agree on it? In the Toronto Star, Jamie Watt argues Justin Trudeau's luxury tax is nothing more than showbiz. Watt writes, This policy is not really about fostering contribution, nor is it about encouraging civic engagement by the wealthiest among us. It is focused on showing that the Liberals will be tough on the millionaire class. And when it comes to actually raising revenue, the luxury tax is a drop in the bucket. Over five years, it's expected to raise $604 million, compared to a projected deficit of roughly $350 billion. It's hard to see it even making a dent. In the Hamilton Spectator, Bianca Mugheni asks if Canada should spend billions on new fighter jets. Mugheni writes... Those resources could finance far more socially useful endeavors, or they could turbocharge the transition away from fossil fuels and fund a just recovery. The ongoing pandemic and worsening climate crisis present an opportune moment to question our understanding of security and defense. A good place to start is questioning whether we should spend tens of billions of dollars on dangerous, climate-destroying new fighter jets. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. This morning, MPs in the House of Commons will begin debate on a private member's bill aimed at radically reducing the salary and benefits of the Governor-General. As CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, it joins another bill to the same effect that has been tabled in the Senate. Mark, this morning, MPs will start debate on a private member's bill, C-271, tabled by Bloc Québécois MP Simon Marcil. Basically, his bill calls for the Governor-General's salary to be reduced to all but a nominal sum of a dollar a year and for his or her pension and other benefits to be eliminated. That's a somewhat extreme change when it comes to Canada's vice-regal position. However, in the Senate, senior Conservative Senator Claude Carignan has introduced another bill with a more specific purpose. It would prevent any future Governor-General who resigns before the end of his or her term from receiving a lifetime pension of $150,000 a year or of having access to a lucrative expense account set up for Governor-General of $200,000 a year. That bill basically takes aim at people who, like Julie Payette, the former Governor General, resign in the wake or in the cloud of controversy as she did this past January. 
Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will participate in a virtual roundtable on housing and homelessness, and then joined by the Minister of Fisheries, Bernadette Jordan, and the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, Andy Fillmore. He will participate in a virtual discussion with representatives from Shelter Nova Scotia, Mi'kmaq Native Friendship Centre, and Coordinated Access South Shore Association to discuss new investments in housing arising from the federal budget. The Prime Minister will also chair the Cabinet meeting. Middle Class Prosperity Minister Mona Fortier will take part in a virtual event hosted by the Greater Niagara Chamber of Commerce. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Monday, April 26th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.